Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Gamble. Feeling the polar vortex this week. Well, <laughs> the only thing I'm feeling at the moment is I have an old dog under my desk, and he's been putting out some of them old dog smells. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell died in you? <laughs> I think it was fish. <laughs> I, I would wish that that's all it is. Well, I know it's cold up there in Minnesota where Rocky is, and we'll bring him on talk about that and other things in just a minute. But first, we have this little matter of better know a framework. Awesome. All right, dude, what do you got? I finally found a little tracking device that really works outside your home. Uh, it's a little chip that you basically attached to something and the battery lasts for like three weeks Wow! and it's GPS enabled and you can track it on your phone. It's pinggps.com. Cool. Yeah. They also have one for the home, which is not quite as expensive, but I was very surprised at uh, how cheap it was. The long range version. It's 79 bucks. Wow. That is cheap. Yeah. And that's Bluetooth GPS cellular unlimited range. Oh, did I mention that you got to pay six bucks a month for the for the uh, data service? Makes sense. But if you you know you get a couple of these and you basically put one on your car and hide it under uh, you know underneath a frame somewhere, and every three weeks you pull it out and swap it out for one with a fresh battery, you know that's not bad. It's a tracker. Yeah, it's I, I like the idea of you know putting it in your suitcase. So if your baggage gets lost, at least you know where it is. That's a really good idea. Uh, the problem is that most baggage handling areas, no GPS signals get through, no no cell signals get through. So, Well, I know a guy who's a, a trumpet player I've worked with who has this beautiful 1940s Martin trumpet, and he thinks it might have actually belonged to Miles Davis at one time because he's from St. Louis also. Wow. And he asked me once, you know, is there any kind of tracker I could put in it when I travel just in case it gets stolen or separated from me. And uh, so we worked on that problem for a while, and I don't remember what we came up with, but it wasn't this good. Cool one. Well done, dude. Thanks. Who's talking to us today, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 1539, which we did with one Rocky Laka back in April of 2018, talking about Blazor and WebAssembly. Oh, yeah. Great conversation. Of course, still still a very buzzy product. Lots going on in there. Right. Uh, and I really love this comment. It's from Marcos Kirshner, who said, Hello, guys, and thanks for another great show. At some point, the, our conversation turned to why Mono was chosen for Blazor instead of .NET Core. Hmm. And Richard argued that they couldn't do it with .NET Core since the thing is written in C Sharp and you need to generate WASM out of C++ native code. Right. Well, I don't buy it. I had a pretty good idea of the thing with C++ and I double-checked it. The Roslyn compiler, the class library, and maybe some lesser parts of it might be managed code, but the runtime itself is C++. If we think about it, it could never be managed all the way down. The actual processor does not understand managed code. So to bootstrap the thing, we really need some machine code that is in the runtime infrastructure. The pieces yeah. that are really managed code are taken care of by the runtime, and eventually real machine code is emitted for them. That being said, I don't think it would be just easy to add WebAssembly support to .NET Core since Mono has a different story for ahead-of-time compilation and they already had experimental support for WASM generation. It just seemed a better choice to go with Mono than to start from scratch and try and implement it all on .NET Core. Hmm. Love the show. And greetings from the south of Brazil. That's from Marcos. Nice. And you know what? I'm not going to argue with Marcos too much on this. It's true that .NET Core could be used in WASM for Blazor. And one would even argue that if they're going to productize it, it probably should be used because then you have one common code base. You know, one of the concerns with using Mono is it's still a separate code base. Right. And so keeping it in sync with changes and stuff is hard to do. I think the main reason they used Mono was exactly what he said, that it was already there. Right. Uh, it was Miguel that was excited about it. And so he sort of jumped on board too. He kind of drove that whole thing and you can just pick up Mono and go. But as we start considering the prospect of Blazor being a real product, not just this experiment. What they have to do is basically recreate the entire base class library. You well, know? they've got it in, in, the, in, in a managed code version, but it should be, and it ultimately compiles down to machine code anyway. You just have mm -hmm. to build the layers to make that work. Mm. The, the, you know, the whole point of .NET Core was w having one code base for .NET. 
that right. worked across all these different things. And as soon as you break that, you create problems. So, uh, you know, I hope they get there, but I appreciate uh, Marcus's thinking, and I think it's, it's right on. A very, very timely comment. Yes. Well so done, Marcos, sir. thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code By, write a comment on the website at donnetrocks.com or via Facebook, because we publish every show there. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code By. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet and we'll ping you. Nice. All right. Let's bring back to the show Mr. Rockford Lotka, otherwise known as Rocky. He's the CTO at Magenic one of the nation's premier Microsoft Gold certified partners, dedicated to solving today's most challenging business problems. He's also the creator of the widely used CSLA.net open source development framework and is a Microsoft regional director and MVP. And Rocky speaks everywhere, all around the world, all the time. Welcome back, Rocky. Glad to be here. We're talking .NET standard today. And uh, this is a, a standard by which if you develop to it, you know that other things that develop to that standard will be compatible with it. Um, so greater compatibility used in projects targeting either .NET Core or the .NET Framework, but different from .NET Core. And I just wanted you to untangle that a little bit. I know we've done it before, but for the person who's new to it, let's give them the five-minute pitch. It is a uh, something that causes a lot of ongoing confusion, there's no doubt. Yeah. And... Uh, I don't think it has to, but it, it certainly does. And so when I'm talking to folks uh, all over the place, the most common desire is, I want to get to .NET Core, or our future is on .NET Core. And, and I can't argue with that, but I don't think that the .NET framework is going to go away anytime soon, and I don't think Mono is going to go away anytime soon mm -hmm. you know you we were just talking about that in terms of blazer right and uh, right uh, but also xamarin runs on top of mono and so if you really look at the 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 reach that net provides at least for in the foreseeable future for probably many years we are all left as developers trying to figure out how can we write code that can run on net core .NET Framework and Xamarin and Blazor, uh, and maybe other WebAssembly frameworks too, right? Blazor is just one of several that are being worked on. So then the question is, well, how do I write, essentially, if we boil it down, how do I write code that can run on the, uh, I'm going to call it the legacy .NET Framework. <laughs> yeah, the, nice. Uh, the and, and .NET Core and Mono; those are really the three implementations of .NET that are are out there widely used today. Don't you consider UWP its own implementation of .NET? <sighs> I do. It, it really you, is. It's, so is it it's, just the widely part? <laughs> it's, <laughs> so true. So true. Jeez, <laughs> oh, how did I get myself into that one? Uh, I feel bad. <laughs> Uh, yeah, your words, not mine. There we go. Okay, great. Thanks. Leave that on me, Rocky. <laughs> uh, but it, but it's true. When I you know, I have a slide when I'm talking about this, you know, PowerPoint slide that that really talks about four different flavors of .NET, and um, and and hopefully this puts it in context in that .NET Core is not necessarily everyone's ultimate destination. It is right. just one of four different implementations of .NET. And it's a good one, and it probably is the future. But for most of us, especially at an enterprise level, we got to figure out how to deal with all four for the foreseeable future. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so .NET standard is what really opens that door. .NET standard is nothing more than an interface definition that, you know, it's an interface, just like a class interface or, or you know, in C Sharp or VB. And you say, well, if I write my code against this interface, so if I write my code to target .NET standard, then my code can run on any .NET implementation that implements .NET standard. Right. So rather and, than worry about going to core per se, get to standard, right. and then it's a, just another stage of the conversation. That's exactly right. It's what we used to do with portable class libraries. Right. Um, 
yes, portable. You can think, I think at least, of portable class libraries as like the prototype for, uh, and, and it was flawed. And, yep. and it, it was ambitious and pretty cool, but but it was a flawed approach that then was refined. And, and I don't think we would get, we would, you know, I don't think we would have .NET standard without the PC, you know, PCLs. You know, they think we that was there was a lot of learning that happened around right. that. Um, those lessons were taken and and applied, and now we've got .NET standard. Yeah. Um, and, and and maybe too part of it to to be uh, fair to everybody at Microsoft, you know, PCLs actually were trying to solve a tougher problem because at that time. You know, a few years ago, there were more than four targets involved. There was also Windows Phone um, and Silverlight. And some of those, especially the Windows Phone target, was extremely restrictive. Right, right. And so PCLs, you know, if we, if we really look at it, uh, they had a harder problem to solve. At, at least now, you know, Mono and .NET Framework have always been pretty close to peers. Uh, .NET Core uh, took until version two to become a peer, uh, and UWP uh, all similarly, uh, you know, basically took until Windows 10, you know, within the last couple of years to become a peer. And so we now have got four implementations of .NET that can support .NET standard, uh, and this is important because .NET standard really is the vast bulk of .NET. Yeah. I mean, just take away all the UI stuff and any legacy, you know, like system dot, uh, enterprise transactions, you know, the stuff from Complus and you, know, you take away all of the truly per platform or per UI things and .NET standard really covers essentially everything you're going to encounter. Uh, I really appreciate that, but it is the UI stuff like .NET Core for me is really just for web dev, right? It's for backend services and nothing else. If you've got a desktop app, you're staying on the original .NET. Until .NET Core 3, right, where Microsoft is bringing in Windows Forms and WPF support. Right. Um, and, and, and I think that was a smart move on Microsoft's part. I, I got to believe their long-term goal is for all of us to move on to .NET Core um, and probably Mono. I, I, I'm skeptical. I, I think Mono has got a life of its own, and it, in some ways, to to you know, the Blazor example and probably others, it moves faster than uh, the conservative .NET Core, even mm -hmm. though they're both open source. Um, but I, I think yeah, I just you know, amuse this idea that we have two versions of, of the framework then for Linux in core and mono. Well, lin Linux and maybe other platforms, right? right? I mean, you know, iOS or is, you know, is its own thing. And, um, uh, who knows what the future brings, but I guess my, yeah. my bet is that essentially .NET framework is going to stick around for the next couple, two or three decades as that's, that's the thing that runs all the old stuff. Widely used. Widely used. <laughs> Noting that the VB6 <laughs> runtime is still patched for security and still installs by default with every copy of Windows. Yep. Yep. And, and, and we still encounter VB6 apps that people are, are nowadays trying to figure out, well, can I lift and shift this into the cloud? Um, right. Or, or you know, some equivalent and, and just remind know. us, it is 2019. The last update to VB six was 1999. It was 20 years ago. Wow. Well, in fact, just a couple of weeks ago, I tweeted something about this thing called pick and universe. And I, I vaguely in the back of my mind had, this came in as an opportunity at Magenic. It's like, Hey, you know, can you guys do pick? <laughs> Are you I'm talking like, about pick basic? Like I, I'm pretty sure I heard about pick once. And, and so I Googled it and, and, you know, find a Wikipedia page. Uh, it's some spinoff variant of Unix from in the mid sixties. And, uh, so I tweeted, I'm like, wow, you know, the old, old technology never dies. And then a whole bunch of people came out of the woodwork and they're like, I did pick. And people as recently as like the late nineties were like, oh yeah, I, I did pick not that long ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know ADP was using PIC for a while. 
I mean, back in the nineties, I'm stretching. This is like old, old, old timers week here. Yeah. But, but my point is that, that something as I would say niche and old as that is still in active use. And now we've got at least one company out there saying, Hey, how do we move this into the cloud and maybe wow. modernize it? And wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's so, I got two words. Rewrite. <laughs> well, <laughs> that would be our recommendation. Certainly. Yeah. <laughs> Man. <laughs> but if you've got a .NET app, I don't even care what flavor of .NET app it is. Even if it's still, you're hung at 1.1, I think you got to be better off migrating just to standard. You can still make that work. Well, and that's, yeah, I wrote a blog post not that long ago about this. And because I've put a lot of thought into it and I've talked to a, a, a lot of folks in the Microsoft community, uh, you know, thought leaders and then also Microsoft folks and at a tech technical level, there's a lot of techniques you can use, uh, around modernization, but I'm always looking at this from a you know, based out of my enterprise roots, I guess, and saying, Hey, suppose that you've got a, a couple, two, three, 400 apps, <laughs> which is not unlikely, right? Right. A whole bunch of them written in, in the .NET framework, some of them running on .NET one point something or two yeah. point something or, right. You know, three and, and some of them are current, I'm sure. And so what, what is your strategy? Because you can't, most organizations can't do a big bang rewrite. No, these apps are enterprise. They're being used today. And so yeah, at, at a high level, you know, the way I look at it is that you're, you first need to get all of your apps uh, and this may take time, but slowly but surely get them at least to .NET 4.6.1. Yeah. Because that's the first point at which you can be where .NET framework is also compatible with .NET standard. All right. So that's like the, that's a minimum bar thing, right? So you, you almost have to get there first. Right. And, and that's the easy part. Well, really. For, really, it shouldn't be that bad, right? Right. Um, yeah, it, and it, though it can be, there certainly have been some, uh, you know, Microsoft is so good about avoiding breaking changes, but still there are some, especially if you are, uh, are, or were playing on the edge of different kinds of tech or, or heavily heavy use of .NET remoting, you're probably going to have to replace that with something more modern. You know, so there are cases where you're going to have to change your code, but, um, Odds are pretty good that you can just recompile. You know, folks got stuck at 1.1 because they were having trouble moving to 2. If I, you know, well, and I'm digging, I think that's like, like 2005. I'm trying to remember stuff from there. And that was, a lot of it had to do with binary incompatibilities with uh, binary formatter, you know, serializer yeah, right. or, or with .NET remoting. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. You know, if you weren't using those particular technologies, it was pretty easy to move forward, but, and you got to stretch our memories here, but you know, it wasn't until 2000, um, what seven, probably the WCF finally stabilized. And so there was right. a, yeah. Okay. W 2007, I think you're still optimistic. It was still a battle. <laughs> oh yeah, that's true. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think but, all yeah, those so, W star Fs really got their act together by 2010. Well, that's, that's probably fair. Although so, at that point, WCF was looking way too complicated and when API was doing its thing. And, and, uh, so, you know, so you put yourself back in that time frame, and you think, well, and, and I did this, I, myself and, and I advised a lot of organizations and individuals that throughout those years, I said, you know, WCF is the future, but right now the only stable thing, if you got to get work done is remoting. Right. And so there was a, at least five years, if maybe to your point, maybe more like eight years <laughs> of, mm. of heavy use of remoting to build client server, you know, end tier apps. Cause there was no viable alternative. Yeah. And, um, and that's the, that's the part I think that keeps most people kind of trapped or, or they were using, um, ASP.net, you know, web forms and 
there were changes, you know, web forms two and windows forms two had some breaking changes. So there were you, you know, yeah, the same thing. It's, it's one of those things where you, you just try and open it in the new framework and then you see all these problems and you're like, I haven't got time for this. Just stay where we are. So they basically for, for organizations or apps that got stuck at that time, essentially now is the time they're going to have to pay that technical debt and either pay it to get to .NET 4.6.1 or pay it by doing a big bang rewrite. Right. It's, those seem like the only two real opportunity or uh, options at this point. Um, or, or, well, the third option is keep running on, you know, .NET one point, whatever, and don't worry about modernizing. I'm just wait, thinking through all the issues about getting to 461. I mean, at least it's a mature version of the library. It's had a lot of problems knocked out of it. You know, the GAC has come and gone. Like, the, 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 you're going to skip a lot of pain if you literally were coming from 1.1 to 4.61. Well, if, yeah, I, I'm thinking about all of the technologies we used to use that, you know, on the, Rocky talked about remoting and all these things, but there's a whole stack of technologies that old legacy software might be using today that could prevent them from getting there unless they chiseled off these pieces into separate services. And rethink them. And rethink them and redo them. I mean, just to get stuff out of the .NET application that isn't there anymore could well, be a and major Yeah, that too is politically sometimes the hard part because it's easier to get money to rewrite the user experience end of the app than it is to get money to rewrite that deeply invisible backend code. Right. And so we see this all the time where people are hiring us to rewrite their, uh, you know, windows forms or, or whatever, uh, UI rewrite it to be a web-based UI. And then they are still running their, uh, complex services or, or even VB six services. Wow. Um, and, and maybe they've been wrapped a couple times, but the actual service is still running in, in a spinning green ball. model calm. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Ouch. Yep. God, I got chills because no, nobody wants to, nobody wants to spend the money to replace that. <laughs> I mean, at the same time, it's a heck of a lot easier to write services today. Like so much of that code was the plumbing around trying to make it work as a service. Yep. Yes. Right. MTS. Oh, it's anybody's, so much easier. Anybody now. still yeah. running that? They must be. They're, yeah, they, people are. Yeah, that's no yeah. doubt. Wow. Well, com, they're probably running Com Plus, I think, because uh, I, I, I would hope at least nobody's running whatever a server operating system was uh, common in 1997. What it would have been some NT4. <laughs> NT4. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh, that's, but they are, my friend. They are. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I'm sure they are. Um, well, presumably at this point, the old hardware is tipped over already. You're at least in a VM. Right, right. Hopefully. That's it's something anyway. Because there's no chance your floppy disks are still working enough for you to install NT4. You know, somewhere, somebody out there is listening and just laughing their butt off because they're looking at a container full of floppy disks of <laughs> NT4. <laughs> and they're going, wah, ha, ha. The .NET Rocks guy's making fun of us. <laughs> we're trying okay, to be sympathetic. It was a That's CD. It was the 90s. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> I think Carl hit this really nicely then. is starting to separate out the concerns of those old services, these different pieces that maybe make sense to rewrite if you can pull them apart a little. Well, and that really is step two. Is um, And I guess you could do these in, in different orders, steps one and two. But uh, you got to get to .NET 4.6.1 or higher. And then, uh, either during that process or after it, then you've got to start, uh, teasing apart your, uh, business logic from any of your UI logic, you know, because, um, and I would put this in, in past tense, but it's still very true today. Uh, people jump into visual studio, they start writing their app and the easiest place to put any sort of, uh, business logic or, or all that sort of stuff is in a button click event or in a, uh, post back handler or in a controller method. Um, and so that was the right. way 
Well, now you're just talking like, you know, these brownfield apps that are Windows Forms based where everything's code behind. And I mean, that's a whole nother level of problems. Are you really going to try to convert that Windows Forms program to .NET standard and run it as a .NET standard Windows Forms app? Well, that's this is a key business decision point, uh, and the technology informs the business decision. Mm-hmm. But really, it's um, again we come back to if I've got um, a Windows Forms app with a few hundred or, or maybe even a few thousand forms, um, can I afford to rewrite that f- essentially from scratch uh, as a web app or something? Uh, or is it better to go through slowly but surely and tease out the business logic that's buried in all of those forms and pull it out into a separate DLL? And, and yeah, this I don't is know not just how you could Windows justify forms, you know? doing it. It's, it's too many forms. It's just too much money. It's it, it's a rock and a hard place, no doubt. Yeah, and and right. if you nail it, you're right back where you started anyway, and your chances yep. of nailing it are almost zero. Yep. But, the, but this yeah. is the, this is the trick, right? Is that for the most part, .NET standard is a great place to write data access code or to write business logic. Right. For the most part, your UI code is still going to be per platform. So it's going to be uh, in .NET framework or your UI code is going to be in .NET core or your UI code is going to be in Xamarin or UWP, right? Your, your UI code is probably going to be in one of the four concrete platforms, but your business code and your data access code are the things that can be pulled out and made uh, reusable across platforms. So I, I got to think, and I'm just guessing here, I got to think the majority of people that are wanting to move to .NET standard are web-based apps and most likely ASP.NET maybe web forms, maybe even MVC, uh, ASP.NET apps. Certainly those um, have a little bit of an advantage in that they're already web. Well, you would like to think so, but if you look at most Windows, or sorry, web forms apps, they're written in the same kind of crappy non-architecture as, as Windows yeah, forms. I was thinking more, I, I agree with you, and yeah. There isn't a, a way forward other than a rewrite in most cases for them, UI-wise anyway. But um, I was really thinking of an MVC app or a web API app. Well, That so, would certainly yeah. be easier. So let's tease those apart, though, Carl, because sadly, most MVC apps end up with all of their business logic written in the controller. Right. Right. And so that's the same crappy non-architecture, too, right? The, the controller is part of the UI, part mm-hmm. of the presentation layer. And so they're still kind of, I mean, yeah, they're slightly better off, but it's still a, a poor implementation. Um, people that wrote web API apps, now they're in a much better spot because the, the, there is no real coupling between the UI of a service. And, and I, people laugh when I say that, but when I mean, when I say UI, it's the XML or the JSON contract, right? Um, and so there really is kind of a quote unquote UI or at least what we'd call an interface. And, but there's not, uh, the concepts around data binding, um, a lot of the, uh, interaction between view and controller and, and, you know, those things are much weaker yeah. in, in all of the web API technologies that have happened, uh, over the years. And so just because essentially Microsoft, the, the frameworks, tools, the tooling in Visual Studio has never helped us as much. That also means that it never guided us down the wrong path as badly. Right. So yeah, we're 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 in better shape. That's, yeah. And and you know, but really, you know, a lot of the driver here uh, ends up being that the back end has to be moved into. People want to close their data centers. Yeah. Um, or, or consolidate them. They're either moving to a public cloud or they're moving to private clouds and consolidating themselves into fewer data centers or, or at least if they're keeping the physical data centers open, they're consolidating uh, to use fewer servers because they're running everything in a VM-based model or, or right. nowadays into a container-based model that gets much higher density. And Rocky, I'm sorry to interrupt for this moment, but we have this very important message. 
Hey, this is Carl, recording from my hotel room in London. I'm here for the NDC this week, but I just wanted to give a shout-out to one of our $100 a month silver patrons, Elizabeth Schneider. Thank you, Elizabeth, and thanks to all of our patrons, even if you're only donating a buck a month. And if you'd like to pay us back so we can continue to keep the world informed about modern app development, please make a pledge at patreon.netrocks.com. And now you can continue listening to the show, and I'll get back to my Earl Grey and Sage Darby. And we're back. Richard Campbell, Carl Franklin. It's .NET Rocks talking to our friend Rocky Lockya about migrating to the .NET standard. Yeah. And I got a question for you. Ever had anyone at Magenic or come to Magenic and say, we have this WPF app that was written using an MVVM framework, and we want to take everything that is from the view model forward, um, view model backwards rather, and, uh, and, and upgrade that to, um, you know, the, the .NET standard or even just something a little bit more modern, and then rewrite the view in, let's say, MVC or just basic web technology using a, may, maybe a spa or something like that, maybe a mobile app? Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah, you, usually it's not quite framed that way. The, the, our typical conversations these days kind of start at a higher, slightly higher level where it's, you sure. know, we've got a portfolio of apps that we need to modernize and get into the cloud. And then looking at apps that have a, you know, for example, a WPF interface, you know, either they're written just like windows forms, in which case our previous conversation becomes valid mm. or if, if they really were written with a, a good structure with around, uh, with MVVM, that can help uh, quite a bit because at least there's some separation. Right. The, the odds of very few people successfully create view models that are truly divorced from the view. Right. Um, and, and so the, there's still not, it's not a cakewalk. But uh, if, if you were, and, and I'm not sure we've encountered one of these yet, but if you were really pure about it, um, it might not be too bad, but the reality is that usually what happens is you have to still tease out all of the, uh, UI types that got accidentally used in a view model. Oh yeah. Um, I, I would but, think that happens you know, more often in WPF than say Silverlight. Like I think if I was looking for pure MVVM, it might be an old Silverlight app. Well, Silverlight made it much easier. Uh, yeah. A lot of, a lot of things that, um, yeah, and, and I, I almost shed a tear every time that Silverlight comes up because it was so well done. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's true. But but still, people that do MVVM generally have reasonable decoupling. Um, but you're right. There's almost always leakage where somebody used a UI type uh, in their view model, and of course you have to tease that out. But once you've teased that out then you end up with a, a reasonably pure view model that can be almost always compiled into .NET standard, um, which of course essentially brings us to step three, right? Cause step, step one being get to four, six, one step two being mm. one way or another, you've got to separate the UI from the uh, business and data access logic. Um, and then step three is that, you, and there are several techniques to do this, but, uh, step three is that you try to compile your code into .NET standard. Mm, interesting. And so one of the, and this is where, um, you know, folks like Oren Novotny is going to probably, uh, ding me on this one because he's going to be like, oh, they could just replace the CS proj file with the modern CS proj file and oh. dual target. Right, where, where you your project compiles for .NET and also for .NET standard, which is true, you can do that. But again, I look at all this from an enterprise app perspective, and that's a I believe a fairly high risk scenario because you still need to keep your existing code running. So, I, my ideal is I don't want to touch my existing. CS proj file because I know it works. It passes the testing that I've got and the users are using it and I just don't want to touch it. Right. Mm. Testing. What testing? <laughs> <laughs> well, 
I, I, I live in a utopia world here. (laughs) (laughs) I like to, I like to think everybody has tests. I like that about you, Grocky. You're a good optimist. (laughs) So regardless, right. Even if you don't have tests, this is a risk that you probably are hesitant to, uh, to assume. Right. Hmm. So my ideal is to set up a whole new project that targets .NET standard. Um, and then I want, I want all the same code files to be built there and also continue to build for my old project. Mm-hmm. And, but I don't want to, I don't want to duplicate the, uh, physical files on disk or in source control because that makes my uh, you know, I'm going to probably be running the old version and working on the new version for months, if not years. Right. Yeah. Side by side yeah. for a while. Yep. So, so ideally it's going to be w- literally one code base, just targeting both platforms. Right. And so separate project files uh, to keep them uh, intact. Exactly. Yeah, I like that. And I, and I like just that admission that we're never going to take the old way app away. People are just going to stop using it. Right. I mean, it, you know, there's, there's multiple levels to this. There's the whole technology level that we're talking about, but at, a, mm-hmm. at the next level up, there's the business level, which is what you're alluding to. Um, you know, the business users are going to continue using the old system. At some point we're going to get a, a small enough or, or a, sorry, a functional enough part of the, the new implementation working that we can start using it against, or some of our more, um, trusted users can use that as a beta right and then slowly we'll develop a migration plan that might take two or three years to get everybody migrated off the old one to the new one during which one of the apps inside of an organization yeah Yeah, this is one of hundreds typically yes so it's this is a you know a big deal and we have to have a way of not only um building the new stuff but also it's not like the existing s- production system stops in place. No, it's getting feature enhancements and bug yeah. fixes. And, and so we need to make sure all of those enhancements that are occurring in the production system get into our new system at the same time, mm-hmm. which again drives back to a unified code base. Yeah. You don't want to have to be duplicating every implementation. So visual studio has this concept called shared projects. And, and I, I believe this is a, a, a really good technique. It's not the only technique, but I think it's a good one. And so if you take your existing code, um, you open it up in visual studio and add to your solution, a shared project, uh, uh, yep. A shared, shared class library project, I think is what it's called, but it's a shared mm-hmm. project. And then you drag and drop all of your existing CS files or, or VB files. It's same deal. Um, mm-hmm. from your current production DLL, you know, class library project, you drag those into this new empty shared project. So far, no risk, right? Cause that right. Co- it's a copy operation. Right. And then, and, uh, and this next step is going to make people's palms sweat and their heart stutter. And, um, you know, you, know, you want to triple check that you actually have good source control practices that you've done a commit and a push and that you uh, also have backups, but then you, you delete all of the files out of your original project, all, all, all the CS files. Right. Ew. Yeah. This is scary. Ew. Yeah. No, I'm terrified. And, 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 and here, this is a leap of faith, right? Um, and then you go into the original you know, .NET framework class library and you add a reference to your shared project. Yeah. And then you recompile your .NET class library and it's the same as it was before. It's just, and yeah, if you've done this right, it should just work. It should just work. Right. And, and no changes, no muss, no fuss. Literally all we did was we should put the code in essentially into, we put the class files into a different folder on your hard drive and they're still getting compiled just like they were before. 
And then you yeah, check all the word delete some... that really freaked me out. I mean, yeah. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the scary part. That's that's yeah. yeah. But now you've got a, a a build system to maintain the old project while working on the new project. And yep, and and so the, the, once you get that far, now I can create a brand new .NET standard class library project. Mm-hmm. And I can add a reference from that project to my, the same shared project. Right. Right. So now I've got two concrete projects, my .NET framework project and my .NET standard project that are both pulling their code from that shared project. And so now when I compile the .NET framework, the production system, no change from what I had before. Right. And it's a good bet that now when I try to compile the .NET standard project, it will fail because I have, even though it's trying to compile all the same code, I'm going to have to go back or go into this new project and add all of the NuGet package dependencies um, and and other, you know, that sort of thing uh, that are equivalents to what I was using in the .NET framework. Mm. And and this is kind of the trick here. I said equivalents too. I was using uh, care, carefully choosing my words, right? Because yeah. some things like, uh, let's say newtonsoft.json, um, have existed for a very long time. Most people are using, I, I think the last I saw everyone uh, is using almost, uh, the version nine of that library or something is the most common, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but the current version I think is like 12 and the current version supports the .NET framework and .NET core and .NET standard. Nice. And so, but, but here's the fun part. You might be able to leave your production system running against version nine and in your new DLL, right, the, the .NET standard one, you might reference version 12 and it might all continue to work because uh, James did a good job with backward compatibility also. But the, the alternative here, let's, let's say Entity Framework. So you're using Entity Framework, which a lot of people are. And now you go to use, you know, of course it won't compile because you haven't referenced entity framework in your .NET standard project. So you say, oh, great. I'll just go reference the entity framework. And then you find out that you can't because the entity, the old entity framework doesn't exist for .NET standard. Hmm. And Microsoft created a new one called entity framework core, which is not the same, but is similar. Um, and so you say, oh, well, I'll reference the new one, of course, the you know, Entity Framework Core, and your code still won't build because Microsoft rewrote parts of the API. Right. Ouch. And, and, and it's just one example, right? These are the kind of the two big scenarios, right? There is a moral equivalent, like with uh, Newtonsoft JSON, or there's a direct equivalent, I should say. And then with the Entity Framework, there's a moral equivalent. And so then what you have to do to solve this problem is at least what I recommend people do is use compiler directives, uh, in their code to say that, that here's a block of code that compiles for, uh, net standard two O and then here's code that compiles for the .NET framework. You know, you just can't get away from those compiler directives. Can you? Yeah, you know, they've been with me for my entire career. <laughs> if <laughs> starting with CEO, you know, probably in C or something, I think to start with, and then yeah. carrying forward all the way to today. Yeah. So, uh, but but the the advantage there is that you still you have one code file, um, e- even though parts of it might be compiling for one platform or the other. Mm. Um, it still is a reasonably maintainable thing, especially if you consider that like, even with something as complex as my CSLA framework, 90 some percent of the code is the same for different platforms. It's only, uh, you know, the exception that's different. Yeah. But 10% can still be a lot of code. 10% can definitely still be a lot of code. Yeah. There's, there's no doubt. I'm not saying this is a walk in the park. I'm, I'm, but it's a, um, I think it's, uh, the smoothest walk in the park that I'm aware of. It's a good strategy. We we're still pushing a rock uphill, but you've given us the best path up the hill. I, I, I would like to think so. Yeah, no, I appreciate yep. that. 
Uh, and then your, th- your third scenario is that there is no moral equivalent, hmm. right? You've got, you've got a NuGet package that you're using and there literally nobody has created an equivalent to it that runs in .NET standard. Yeah. Right. And that can be a hard stop. Sure. Right. I mean, that, that's the point at which you're like, wow, I mean, do I abandon that functionality? Do I rewrite that functionality? Do I contact the author of the original package and, and, you know, find out that they've uh, since retired to a nice Island somewhere or, you know, <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm pleased as punch to say that poly is .NET standard one Oh, nice. Ooh. Yeah. Won't have any problem with that. Well, and that's just the thing. A lot of the more, um, more recent common things like, like poly or, or things around dependency injection, a lot of the more trendy frameworks that we've been using in the last, I would say five or so years. Yeah. Um, uh, for the, you know, basically anything that's actively maintained probably has .NET standard support. Um, Probably. The, the real risk is if you get back to some of those legacy apps, like we were talking about that are still running in, you know, .NET one or .NET two and might have dependencies from, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. Right. Uh, well, I, I was going to say, especially open source, but that's not even true just because there's a lot of companies that have come and gone too. Yeah, sure. Mm. Vendors out of business. There's nobody to call. Hmm. So it's, it's, I mean, it's just of, uh, you know, things that are no longer actively maintained, whether open source or proprietary, um, those are the real sticking points. Sure. Yep. But I also got to think once you discover something like that, like this is again, a business level discussion. It's like, we are now dependent on a library that is not being maintained, which represents a security risk, Mm -hmm. certainly a functionality risk. Like, shouldn't we get off that library? Absolutely. And, and it really is, it's, again, this is the, I, I view it as the technology informing a business decision. Uh, it's, it's, just, it's awfully easy for all of us as technologists to think, oh, this is a tech, you know, a tech problem with a tech solution. But at the end of the day, it's going to probably cost a lot of money, uh, one way or the other. And so it ends up being a business decision about you know, what, what is the best, most cost-effective way to work around through or, or past this problem. Right. And I would think that would be one of the first things that would be part of the analysis of, can we move is look at all your dependencies. That's going to inform where you're going from there. Right. Yep. Which is why it's good to, I I think have this, um, strategy, uh, on how do you migrate, uh, in your mind up front and say, okay, here's these series of steps that I'm going to take. Uh, and I know that these are the steps. And so now I can look at my existing code base and say, well, um, you know, am I, uh, am I going to run into trouble on steps one, two, three, four, or five, right? Right. Um, the, the other thing, because most organizations, the goal here is to go to the cloud. Uh, so, so what we've talked about here is very much tactical around.net standard and how to get there. But then there's also, uh, 12factor.net, which everyone who wants to go to the cloud should go read because it's a list of 12 patterns for successful cloud-based apps. And also there's uh, eight fallacies of distributed computing. So if you search for fallacies of distributed computing, you'll get a nice Wikipedia page. I'm including show links as fast as you say them, Rocky. (laughs) And, and, and these are, uh, essentially anti-patterns, right? These are, you know, they're basically things that ideas that get into people's heads that are universally false, uh, such, such as there's no such thing as network latency or, or we just ignore it. Um, but network latency is a huge deal, especially if you say that you've got a monolithic app and you break it up into dozens or hundreds of microservices. Um, you know, the, the, 10 or so milliseconds latency between each microservice adds up to real seconds by the time that you're done. Sure. Just throw a few round trips in. Yep. Yep. And, um, yeah, and there are, and the, the nice thing in my mind is that, you know, even, uh, 10 years ago when everybody wanted to do SOA and move to the cloud using that technique, um, these were not recorded yet. 
right? Basically, as an industry, we have observed that here are some patterns and here are some anti-patterns that we know are, are good and bad, you know, respectively. They've been documented. And so rather than finding, relearning these lessons the hard way, um, we can all go, uh, at least in turn, I'm sure there are other lessons, right? <laughs> but, yeah, but at definitely. the very least we've got these to start with and, and we, you know, but, but my point is if you look at like the, uh, the 12 factors, um, you probably don't have to do all 12, but there are some that are unavoidable. Um, if you're going to go to the cloud, such as, um, not using the physical hard drive, um, or mm. such as uh, rethinking the way that your app is configured to avoid the use of config files. Right. Right. And so you know, again, these are not usually complete rewrite things, but they almost certainly, uh, even if for example, you're, you're already doing web API stuff and you have been for the last decade and you're like, Hey, I'm all set to go. Uh, you should review your implementation against the 12 factors because odds are that you're doing some of them wrong. And especially if you go into a container based world, like with Docker and Kubernetes, uh, you really, some, some of them are major gotchas. Right. This is a great document. I'm looking forward to reading it. Yeah. It's all good stuff. Hey, you know, we're getting towards the end of the show here and I almost feel like we abandoned the wind forms people. Well, because they're, they're going to make a new version of WinForms in, in .NET Core three. Although I did a conversation with uh, with Scott Hunter, and he said you know they're going to do some things in WinForms for .NET Core three where you're really going to want to have to test a bunch of stuff. Like it's a different version of WinForms. But are you dealing with folks that are trying to to to, to go through this process with a WinForms app? Not yet. Okay. The the typical the, thus far the WinForms apps that are uh, three tier. Those we encounter and WPF too. Right. And it's really focused on uh, rewriting the back end services and leaving the front end as much alone as possible. Mm. Right. And and usually there the the trick is to switch in, off remoting if they're still using it onto uh, you know, something HTTP, HTTP client based. Right. Um, and rewrite the back end uh, uh, such that it can be hosted in a cloud. Uh, but yeah, the actual rewrite the windows forms front end that, um, I, I doubt we'll see that as something that comes up until, um, after, you know, .NET standard or sorry, .NET core three is out and has been out for a while, uh, so that it's people believe it's stable enough to move forward. But that, I mean, they've maintained WinForms all the way along. So presumably, if you move up to the latest version of the framework, you're using the latest version of WinForms. Well, if you're on WinForms 2, in other words, after, after 2005, then, then by all means, moving forward, at least to uh, the current version of the .NET framework, should be pretty easy. Um, if you're running WinForms 1 point something, you know, pri prior to 2005, uh, you know, there, there were some definite changes there and, and I, you know, you talked to Scott and, and I fully agree, right? I mean, most of the, what, what made a really truly great windows forms developer was somebody who could learn and, uh, internalize all of the idiosyncrasies of all the different controls. And the odds of all of those idiosyncrasies being carried forward perfectly is I think zero. Yeah. And mm -hmm. half the vendors are gone. <laughs> well, that, exactly right. Yep. But even the Microsoft controls, um, I wouldn't be surprised if, if as they rewrite those controls into .NET core, you know, what are the odds that they're going to replicate all the little bugs that we worked around? You know? Yeah. Yeah. None. Um, zero. Not a chance. So, um, but that's, you know, if you're a windows farms developer though, it's kind of your bread and butter and has been for sure. years. And that every time a new, uh, third party grid control, you know, upgrades, you've got to relearn the idiosyncrasies. I mean, it's just part of the, and, and, and of course we say this, like it's unique to windows forms, but you know, you look at angular as it goes through all of its versions or reactor. Yeah. Every time with the major number upgrades, they're, they're major right. numbers for a reason. Stuff breaks. <laughs> yep. 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 That's right. So, I mean, I, I don't want to be, 
perceived as picking on Windows Forms. It's, this is a, a general uh, issue, I guess, we all face as UI developers. Yeah, mm. no, true. I am looking forward to seeing what they pull off with .NET Core 3. I mean, there is this sort of energy around, am I going to be able to take a desktop app and lift and shift it onto, onto Core 3? I think it's optimistic, but I'm going to be watching very closely, and I'm sure we'll be doing shows on it. I'm sure. I'm sure. And I, I think the big message that I took away from all of that is that um, although Microsoft is clearly de-emphasizing .NET framework, they fully appreciate the value um, of the just massive amounts of apps that are out there written in Windows Forms and WPF. Yes. And that those apps and those organizations need a path forward. Yep. Well, in Microsoft, it's not saying Microsoft won't leave any customer behind, but they're not foolish. If there's a bunch of people there, they're going to keep being there. I don't think they want to keep making two versions of .NET, but as long as there's a significant number of customers in both, they're going to keep doing both. They're just trying to get them together. Right. So, uh, Rocky, you're, uh, you guys at Magenic are busy doing this kind of thing, trying to get people to .NET Core via .NET Standard, right? Every day. And so um, what's the percentage of impossible projects that come to you versus ones that are actually doable? Is any, has anything been impossible up to this point? Well, if we define impossible as the uh, economic cost, the business cost of a direct lift and shift is higher than a rewrite, then yeah. yes, <laughs> that yeah. does happen from time to time. Yeah, I guess that's the threshold, the point where it's like, we can just start this over. And so how, I mean, what percentage would you say that would be? I still think it's a relative, thus far, it's at least been a relatively low percentage. I would say probably maybe 20% or something. Wow. That's um, great. But, but yeah. it's, I, I say it like it's a low, right? It's less than half, but uh, again, if you're an organization that's got 500 apps, that still adds up to quite a lot of apps, right? Hundreds. Right. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Well, and as soon as you're confronted with the rewrite, there's the whole rethink. Is this actually a SaaS service we could buy with a couple of changes? Like that whole, exp you know, kind of application architectural discussion. of Do we want right. to own this anymore? Yep. Yep. Or can you, you know, and, and ultimately a lot of the conversation and we've actually got an assessment tool, um, that we use in these cases where we sit down and, and go through the portfolio and, and evaluate each of those, um, you know, hand in hand with our customer, obviously, but trying sure. to evaluate the, at least big picture, um, what is the end, you know, is there a path forward? What's the path forward? You know, is it a, you know, if, if the path forward, like you said, is it to replace it? Is it to rewrite it from scratch? Is it to mm. lift and shift? Yeah. Um, and, um, and then what are the both business and technical costs and benefits of doing that? And I got to think that analysis is valuable no matter what you do going forward, whether you do rewrite chunks of it or migrate chunks of it or move off of it into a third party tool of some kind, that analysis is essential. It is. It is because you're, you're talking, you know, for the most part, you know, we're talking, you know, 10, 20, 30 or more years of, of legacy here. Right. That an, an investment, right. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's this, these are not trivial uh, things, you know, decisions that can be made just on somebody's kind of a gut check. You have to really put some thought into it. And not quickly either. Yeah. There's just no easy way to do this. It takes time. Well, Rocky, it's always great to talk to you and good to catch up, and, and it's great what you're working on. Thanks so much for spending the time. Uh, it's always a pleasure. Thank you guys so much. You bet. All right, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com 
for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a-